Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, and today I'm joined with uh, by Greg O'Malley, whose new book is called Final Passages, the Intercolonial Slave Trade of British America, 1619 to 1807. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. So uh, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to dispense with the pleasantries and just jump right into the book, if that's okay. Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levesey. And today I'm joined with uh, by Greg O'Malley, whose new book is called Final Passages, The Intercolonial Slave Trade of British America, 1619 to 1807. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. So uh, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to dispense with the pleasantries and just jump right into the book, if that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I really like is that the, the title, I think, says quite a bit about your book. So you have this term, Final Passages. And um, I want to maybe spend the first few minutes talking about that, because a lot of people who know anything about the history of slavery probably think about, say, the Middle Passage. And that might be the thing that's the most well known, maybe in the United States, but kind of broadly. And so what are you sort of using with this term final passage and how does it differ from the more traditionally understood term of Middle Passage? Sure. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the term Middle Passage that I'm trying to evoke with the title is that. Um, well, modern readers, I think when they hear that term middle passage, they tend to think of the experiences of enslaved people, the captives aboard these slave ships. That's our association with it now. But interestingly, in the, in the time of the slave trade, the, the term was Eurocentric in its origins. It was, it was called the middle passage to reflect the experience of the sailors on those ships, the European sailors or mostly European sailors um, who were going typically from Europe on a first passage to Africa, from Africa to the Americas, carrying enslaved people as a middle passage of a three part journey. And then a final or third passage from the Caribbean or somewhere else in the Americas back to Europe. Um, so they saw that stage as the second part of the three-part journey and dubbed it the Middle Passage. Um, what I'm trying to play with is an idea that that maybe that actually fits the African experience more than most historians and, and observer, you know, modern observers have realized in the sense that a lot of enslaved people faced extensive journeys within Africa just to reach the, the coast where they were sold to European slave traders who carried them across the Atlantic. Um, and then something that historians really haven't explored very much is that a lot of people moved on from their first port of arrival in the Americas. So my study really starts where most studies of the slave trade end with vessels arriving from Africa in an American port. And there's a sale of enslaved people. Um, I pick up the story there. And, and in simplest terms, the argument of the book is just that far more people than historians have really realized moved again. They were purchased by speculators who bought people as they arrived from Africa simply to move them on to another colony where they could sell them 
more profitably. Um, and so that's the sort of final passage that I'm talking about with that title. Yeah. And, and can you say a little bit more about that, that scale of the trade? You mentioned that it's sort of larger than we might have expected. So what kinds of things did you find in terms of the scale of these final passages with the, the intercolonial slave trade? Sure. I mean, so what I'm the, the it's a little difficult to pin down a, a real precise estimate because and we can I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit. A, a fair amount of this um, trafficking between American colonies was smuggling. So the, the records are not always um, fastidiously kept uh, to document the traffic for, for obvious reasons. But um, my estimate is that it's somewhere around 20% of enslaved people arriving in a British colony. I, I start I, to, to, you know, sort of rein in the research for the project. I start with people who arrived in a British colony in the Americas and then try to follow them wherever they go from there. Many of the, the people move on to Spanish America or French Caribbean territories, um, or elsewhere in British America. And, um, that as many as, as, 20%, 25% of people moved on in this way, experienced a final passage. So um, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people within the, um, you know, arriving in the British slave trade um, and probably getting more toward millions of people if we think of the slave trade as a whole, if, if the British experience was at all typical of the slave trade to other um, empires in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into that, maybe the, the numbers a little bit and into the records that you use. Um, but, but just to kind of keep in mind that this is obviously the, the trafficking of humans. Um, could you talk a little bit about what this, this intercolonial trade was like and um, what was it like for the Africans that were experiencing it? How did it differ from, say, the Middle Passage? Um, and, and sort of what kinds of contrasts do you see between the two, just in terms of what the people themselves were experiencing? Sure. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the key aims of the study is to try to reflect upon what this final passage meant for the captives in the trade, how it changes the way we understand their experience. And one of the the first things that I think is really important to keep in mind with this is that most of the people who experienced the final passage did so fairly quickly after arriving from the middle passage. The greatest fear on the part of slave traders was mortality among the people that they considered their cargo, right? They, they didn't, weren't as concerned about that in humanitarian terms, but were concerned about that as a financial loss. And so they wanted to sell people as quickly as possible. Speculators who purchased enslaved people wanted to get them to wherever they needed to be for resale as quickly as possible um, to, to lower that risk. But what that meant is that people who were arriving having just survived the Atlantic crossing. And, and we know a lot from other studies about the crowded conditions upon slave ships, about the many diseases that ravaged these groups of captives, um, measles, smallpox, infectious diseases like the yaws that were related to the unsanitary conditions, scurvy, all kinds of things. Um, Many people were just recovering from those diseases or, or, or hadn't had much chance to recover from them at all before entering this final passage. So even though the journeys were shorter, mortality rates were actually higher in this final passage than they were on the middle passage. So it was a very deadly 
dangerous process for enslaved people. Um, but it differed in some interesting ways from the middle passage across the Atlantic in that typically these were smaller ventures. Um, and they also were not as focused on the slave trade. So where a vessel crossing the Atlantic with enslaved people would typically hold, you know, 300, maybe 400 enslaved people in the 18th century, um, and very little else in terms of, of, cargo meant for sale, um, just provisions to keep the enslaved people alive and the sailors alive. Um, the intercolonial ventures tended to be more mixed in terms of their, their cargoes. They would mix slave trading on a smaller scale with other intercolonial commerce. Um, so that was a difference as well. Enslaved people might find themselves in a ship with 20 fellow captives and a bunch of barrels of rum and sugar and other things like that. So the shipboard experience would be a little bit different, often on smaller vessels as well. Mm -hmm. So with all that in mind, I think you're kind of starting to sketch out a portrait of what the importance of this trade was in terms of making slavery not just kind of profitable in these major epicenters, but also in areas that weren't quite as well served by other ships. So could you talk about sort of the market necessity for this intercolonial slave trade and, and what it did to maybe strengthen the, the tenacity of slavery in the Americas? Sure. I think that's one of the, the most important things about reckoning with this additional phase of the slave trade is that um, one of the challenges for transatlantic slave traders is that because they tended to specialize in slave trading for that voyage from Africa to the New World, they would have hundreds of enslaved people on board a ship and not all American markets could um, handle slave trade operating on that scale. So there were many colonies either in the first decades of settlement or some like New England colonies, for example, that were just less committed to slavery as a labor system where that many enslaved people arriving at one time would glut the market. And I apologize for using the, this sort of market language for talking about human beings. Um, it's an uncomfortable language, but I think it's important to understand this is how the traders used it. So if you want to understand why people were moving in the patterns that they did, you have to sort of put yourself uncomfortably in that slave traders mindset. And so the traders coming from Africa wanted to go to the biggest plantation areas in the Americas um, where they could expect speedy sales of large numbers of people. But there was demand for enslaved people in other places. And so one of the roles that this intercolonial trade served was supplying some of those smaller markets for enslaved people and supplying some of the, the newer plantation areas that had not yet sort of gotten their feet on the ground as real um, economic powers drawing on slave labor. So the, the intercolonial slave trade helped to spread the institution, helped it reach um, areas where it was not yet fully established um, by just carrying 12, 20 people at a time to some of these smaller markets for exploitable labor. Um, and then another key piece of this and thinking about how it spread is that the different empires in the Americas didn't all have 
equal, um, an equal trading presence within Africa. Um, so the British were, you know, major slave traders, especially by the 18th century. The Portuguese were major traders in Africa from an even earlier date um, and mostly supplied their own colonies in Brazil. But the French Empire um, and the Spanish Empire in particular never quite – merchants of those empires never quite supplied enough enslaved African people to satisfy the labor demands of their own empires. And so one of the reasons that this intercolonial trade became as robust as it did is that British traders um, and sometimes eager plantation owners in French and Spanish America looked to a, an intercolonial slave trade across imperial lines to um, either acquire laborers in the case of French and Spanish plantation owners or profitably sell enslaved people in the case of these British traders. So there opened up what was typically a, a, an illegal clandestine trade across these imperial borders um, where British supplies of enslaved people were, were sent to these other empires. So there's sort of a geopolitical piece in this as well. And once again, that helps spread the institution of slavery to some colonies that might not have engaged in it, at least to the same degree without this intercolonial network of slave trading. Yeah. And can you talk about that black market just a little bit? And, and we can kind of get into the more formalized aspect of the intercolonial trade. I mean, in some ways the two work side by side, but, but how does that black market work? And, and, you know, you talk about piracy being involved with this as well. Um, so where does that fit in this whole market system? Yeah. In the, in the early going, um, which for the purposes of my study, you know, sort of in the mid, 17th century, there's a, there's a significant role for piracy in all of this. And, and, um, one of the things that's sort of interesting, um, is that there, there are lots of examples of pirates seizing slave ships, but one of the things that pirates often did, and they did this not only with enslaved people, but with commodities as well, um, was that to find markets to fence their stolen goods, or in the case of the slave trade, enslaved people, they would often go to some of the smaller colonies that weren't supplied as effectively by legal trade. Um, markets that were smaller and sort of overlooked by um, legal European traders because those markets, of course, were more desperate for commodities of various kinds and oftentimes desperate for um, supplies of labor. And so they were willing to sort of turn a blind eye to the illegality of piracy. So I argue that piracy played a significant role in helping spread slavery in that way. Um, as you get a little later and supplies of enslaved people are arriving more steadily in some of the major colonies um, of the Americas, the way that trade works, um, it comes down a little more to some of the market dynamics. So to, to take the case of the French Caribbean, um, the French Empire had firm rules that no foreign traders were allowed to trade in French colonies. It was a cement, The colonies were meant to be the exclusive province of French merchants. But because French merchants weren't bringing as many enslaved people as French colonial plantation owners wanted – 
a real price discrepancy started to emerge between the market for enslaved people in French colonies and the market in British colonies. Um, literally at points in the early 18th century, um, prices for enslaved people would be double in a French colony than they were in a British colony. But it's important to keep in mind here the geography of the Caribbean. Um, these islands were sometimes only a couple days sail away from each other. These were very proximate markets that were completely out of whack in economic terms. So there was a huge incentive for both French plantation owners to circumvent these trade restrictions and for British slave traders to circumvent those trade restrictions. So they found all kinds of creative ways to do that. And the um, records of the French imperial government are just full of governors explaining, you know, governors on the ground in the Caribbean explaining to their superiors in France why they're failing to stamp out this illegal trade between the empires or across imperial borders. And they point to um, little out-of-the-way islands that are unoccupied by Europeans or sometimes used as, as places um, of exchange in a black market um, that traders use out-of-the-way ports on these French islands to just away from prying eyes, conduct trade. They had all kinds of creative ways of, of circumventing the regulations. And then there were lots of suspicions within the French empire that various governors and other officials were taking bribes from British traders to allow people in. Um, so that was another mode that they used as well. And there's a similar story for the Spanish empire too. Let's, uh, it, there's a lot to, to kind of pull out of this and um, maybe we'll kind of eventually circle around to some of these big geopolitical issues that come out, especially in the, the early to mid 18th century. Um, but let's, let's kind of start small and then get there through sort of showing how this intercolonial trade really did affect the political aspect, um, not just of slavery, but also of these empires. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start within just the British empire itself. Uh, how did these markets actually affect the way that the, the Anglo colonies related to each other, because uh, you sort of mentioned that there are these short distances between islands. There's a lot of kind of interference by illegal traders, but there's also kind of a more formalized trade that emerges uh, with the Royal African Company. So what happens just between the colonies themselves and how does that intercolonial slave trade perhaps affect their relationships? Sure. Um, definitely one of the, the dynamics that emerges is that the, um, the colonies that are on the receiving end of the, the final passage of these intercolonial um, slave trading ventures, they often complain about being sort of a step removed from Africa in the, in the supply chain, to put it crudely. They feel like the, um, the most desirable slaves stay in the colonies where ships initially arrived from Africa, that the planters in, say, Barbados or Jamaica, these um, colonies that get targeted very heavily by traders coming from Africa, that that's where the, in their eyes, the best slaves stay. And that, um, and there, there, there's a very um, unfortunate state or, or phrase that the um, slave traders use for this. They refer to the people who are less desirable in the market for human beings as refuse Negroes. Um, 
And they do sometimes as a strategy in the market, take the people they have a hard time selling in a major port and send them to one of these smaller markets for enslaved people. And so there's a lot of complaints from some of these smaller or sort of underserved markets about their inferior position vis-a-vis the slave trade, um, that they're getting less desirable slaves. And so periodically they'll make efforts to, um, forge more direct ties to Africa in the slave trade. Um, but for various economic reasons that could be hard to do. So you sometimes get, um, merchants writing to one another asking about how to establish a direct slave trade to say a place like North Carolina that doesn't typically receive shipments directly from Africa. Um, but the, they find that it's much more complicated and, and harder to get that trade up and running than, than they initially hope. And often they, they fail to make that direct connection and stay dependent on a major port like Charleston or Bridgetown in Barbados for these indirect supplies of people. Um, so that's one, one dynamic. Is that what you're sort of driving out with that question? Yeah, I guess I'm, I may be trying to lead you to, to maybe talk about how the Royal African Company kind of gets revived and, and is maybe seen as a way of addressing some of these issues and these, uh, these uh, tensions between colonies, but also the sense that the intercolonial trade and the illegal trade is interfering in, in the profitability of the slave trade for the British Empire. So, so maybe we can sort of, we can jump onto the, the Royal African Company and, and sort of what its role is in this story is. So maybe you could just say a few words about um, why the British see this as such an important company and then how it, how it relates to this intercolonial sure. trade. Yeah. So in the era when the Royal African Company has its monopoly um, in the, in the late, 17th century. It's in the 1690s that they finally lose their monopoly. But um, the the British Royal African Company for a while has the monopoly on Britain's trade to Africa. And that actually feeds into the growth of this intercolonial trade in in an important way because the Royal African Company installed agents in certain British American colonies um, so it really tended to concentrate its deliveries on those ports where it had agents on the ground in the Americas. Um, and it didn't have agents everywhere. Uh, so as the as Britain's empire in the Americas grew and the institution of slavery spread, there started to be a lot of territories that felt very much underserved by the company. And it fed into the politics of Um, There were a lot of merchants, independent merchants in the British Atlantic world that wanted to get into the slave trade in Africa. So, of course, they were part of the group petitioning parliament to do away with this royal monopoly. Um, But there were a lot of planters in the Americas or aspiring planters in the Americas who also wanted to see that monopoly done away with because they felt they were really underserved by the Royal African Company. And so they were petitioning parliament as well to do away with monopoly and open up the trade to all British merchants. And, and sure enough, that does, you know, really change the trade dramatically after 1693, when that, that trade gets opened up, um, and, and other traders get in. Um, but it doesn't work out quite the way some of the smaller colonies in America are hoping in that the, um, the independent traders quickly figure out that, it's more profitable for them or safer for them might be a a 
better way to think of it to go to Bridgetown, Barbados and Charleston, South Carolina and Kingston, Jamaica, these major markets of the slave trade where they can sell all of their enslaved people quickly, turn around their vessel with an outgoing cargo and, and move on. Um, that they'd rather do that than sort of hop to smaller ports selling 15, 20 people at a time. Um, so it doesn't do away with the intercolonial trade, but it, it does sort of take some of the constraints off of um, where people are arriving in the Americas. So what happens with that private trade then? Um, because we have the fall of the Royal African Company, but we eventually see the rise of the South Sea Company. Mm -hmm. um, so, so does private trade do a pretty good job of getting enslaved Africans where the planters want them? Um, does the South Sea Company do a better job than the Royal African Company in that regard? Um, how is it still complicated by this, these final passages? Sure. So the, the, um, the private trade does, I think, do a pretty good job. I mean, just in, if you look at the raw numbers, once the Royal African Company's monopoly is done away with, the, the volume of the British slave trade across the Atlantic really increases. Um, and uh, even though the, the initial deliveries are fairly concentrated on a small number of British ports, the intercolonial trade becomes quite robust and, and um, enslaved people start arriving in, in, you know, any colony that, that wants them through, through the Americas. I think it is a sort of responsive market in that sense. The South Sea Company rises for a different purpose um, in that it's created at the moment when the British receive something called the Asiento de Negros, which is a monopoly slave trading contract with Spain. So in 1713, um, Britain becomes the monopoly slave supplier to the Spanish empire in the Americas. They have the exclusive right to deliver enslaved Africans to Spanish colonies. And they create the South Sea Company to manage that trade. Um, and so the South Sea Company is another monopoly company, but they don't have the monopoly on deliveries to British America. They have the monopoly on deliveries to Spanish America. And they have some designs in the early going on acquiring enslaved people in Africa to supply to Spanish America. But they quickly discover that it's a very big and complicated job. Um, they're expected under the terms of their contract to deliver between 4,000 and 4,800 enslaved people per year to Spanish America. And so they find that it's easier for the most part um, to purchase enslaved people in the Caribbean as they arrive from the transatlantic trade and just shuttle them to Spanish America. So the South Sea Company in significant measure operates as an intercolonial slave trader rather than a transatlantic slave trader. They do some of both, but um, ultimately um, at least half of the people um, that they deliver to Spanish America come via intercolonial trade. And that amount is increasing over their term. They gradually specialize in just that um, delivery. So Jamaica becomes their key hub of the trade where they purchase enslaved people um, supplied by the Royal African Company, which still exists, even though it doesn't have a monopoly anymore. 
um, but also from independent British traders, and in some cases even from foreign traders, to meet this um, huge demand in Spanish America. So, so they operate in that way, um, and but have a very tense relationship with the Spanish Empire through the whole thing. Because one of the things they're really interested in doing is not only profiting from the slave trade, but also they try to smuggle other trade goods. They only have the right to trade in Spanish America to sell slaves. But they try to smuggle in other goods under the the cover of the slave trade to sort of open Spanish America to a broader trade, which probably is a subject we should talk about at some point. Because that's another important theme in the book is those connections between slave trading and other commerce that slave traders are often quite interested in. Well, that was actually my next question. So if you want to just go ahead and take it from there and talk about how that affects even sort of wider diplomacies, too, that'd be great. Sure. Um well, the the I mean, ultimately, it this relationship devolves into war in 1739 um, between Spain and Britain. Um, there is a war caused in sig- significant measure over the tensions surrounding this trade. That Spain struggles mightily and keeps complaining to Britain through diplomatic channels that these slave traders are all smuggling in other cargoes. Um, along with the enslaved people that they're delivering legally. Um, eventually, they're boarding British vessels um, to do inspections. And oftentimes, the, those searches are, are somewhat violent. Sailors feel that they're abused by Spanish officials. Um, and, and there's a war that breaks out in 1739. It sort of grows into a broader imperial war. But in its initial phase, it's known as the War of Jenkins' Ear. And it's in a gets that name from a British sailor um, who famously has his ear severed um, by one of these Spanish boarding parties that's investigating his ship. Um, And he shows up in in Parliament and brandishes the ear. He waves it over his head while giving a speech to Parliament. And it fires, you know, the assembled... um, parliamentarians into a frenzy and and ultimately leads to a declaration of war that has become known as the war of Jenkins year. Um, so those, those tensions are very real. Um, and that's the end of the Asiento, the, the war that that trading relationship is never quite patched up. Um, but it's part of a trend more broadly that traders both across Imperial lines and within the British empire, um, where they try to exploit the demand for enslaved people to open up other profitable branches of trade for themselves. So one of the things that really sort of surprised me in the research was, was finding examples where um, traders were engaging in, in slave trading, not simply with an eye to profitably, you know, to selling a, a human being, for more money than they paid for that human being in another port. But sometimes they were using the engaging in that trade to sort of grease the wheels of other trades. So the British made quite clear, um, or it's clear from British records that, that the South sea company was interested from day one in more than just slave trading to Spanish America. Um, in fact, in the treaty negotiations where they secured the Asiento de Negros, they are initially asking for broader, trade access to, to Spanish America. And they sort of settled for just the slave trading contract. 
But then they negotiated into that slave trading contract some terms that suggest that they were interested in selling other things. So they secure the right to sell any leftover provisions on board the ship. Um, so obviously a slave ship needs to carry some provisions. Well, they would carry huge amounts of flour and then sell it as supposedly leftover provisions. Um, but they would have way more you know, flour on board than you could ever imagine the, the enslaved people eating in a, you know, two week journey from Jamaica to Cuba or something. Um, and similarly it, within the British empire, I have examples of cases where traders were buying enslaved people in Barbados to sell in say South Carolina or North Carolina, um, where prices for slaves in the two markets were more or less equal. Um, they were going to trade enslaved people at no particular profit, but merchants in North Carolina and South Carolina were writing their correspondence and saying, if you come here to do business, there's way too many ships in port for the rice cargo. Um, if you want to get a cargo of rice to sell profitably in Europe, you need to bring some slaves because that's the only way you're going to get a planter to sell you their rice. And so they're willing to trade slaves at no particular profit in order to get into another branch of commerce that they view as very profitable. And so one of the interesting things that I think that raises is questions about how we understand what the profits of slave trading were. Um, this intercolonial slave trade, in the simplest terms, I mean, it adds another round of buying and selling enslaved people, um, not just buying people in Africa and selling them in the Americas, but sometimes buying them in one American colony and selling them in another. So individual enslaved people were sometimes bought and sold multiple times in this journey to the Americas with profits taken at each stage. So that's one complicating factor, but also how do you factor in um, the profits of some of this smuggling to Spanish America, for example, where in the merchant's eyes, only having slaves to sell gained them access to Spanish America in the first place. Um, in some ways you have to see the profitable sale of flour or British manufactured goods in one of these colonies illegally as partly profits of the slave trade when the slave trades, what got them in the door in the first place. Yeah. And in some ways I think that it, when you read this book, you get this sense of just how modern this intercolonial trade is. I mean, it, it strikes you as something that is similar to the way markets work today. Mm -hmm. Um, in kind of doing that research and in writing the book, did you gain a new perspective on how you felt maybe this intercolonial trade or just the slave trade generally? Um, maybe if it kind of redefines for you what the Atlantic economy is like generally, or does it does it kind of change your view on notions of mercantilism or free trade in this period? Or um, are there sort of bigger economic arguments that you pull out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I you know on on one hand the the there's a story of the, the modernization of the economy or the, the liberalization of Atlantic trade in that um, there's a real tension throughout the story between mercantilism and trade barriers between these empires and um, the market impulse to get around those trade barriers as prices, you know, got out of whack. Um, and one of the, the the really interesting things I think you see in the the last 
phase of this that I write about in the book. In the, in the late 18th century, Britain starts experimenting with a free port policy. It's sort of an experimentation with freer trade where they have some of these same kinds of trade restrictions. It's legal for foreign traders to, to trade in their colonies, things like that. And starting in 1767, they, they create this free port act where they make it legal for um, Spanish and French traders to come to British colonies to trade, at least in certain things. Um, they can't just trade. It's not free trade in anything, um, but they can come to their colonies to buy enslaved people and to buy British manufactured goods. And they can only sell um, colonial produce. Um, so whether that's, you know, leather um, from Spanish America, silver um, or sugar, coffee, things like that. Um, and so it's a, it's a managed sort of free trade, but um, it's this interesting way in which you see them wanting to facilitate this profitable commerce and slaves um, across imperial borders. They've recognized that the smuggling trade in slaves has facilitated other commerce that they see as economically advantageous. And after the Asiento agreement has fallen apart, they come up with this free port act a couple decades later to try to sort of reestablish that trade um, on terms that they see as favorable to the empire. So I think the slave trade is bound up in that transition to um, more of a free market ideology. Um, the other sort of big economic story that I see um, in the background here or that this study brings to my mind is um, it's just the thinking about the relationship of slavery to capitalism more generally, because I, I agree with your sense that, you know, studying this stuff, it, it does, it does seem quite like a modern economy in, in various ways, um, the way this trade operates. And, uh, you know, conventionally slavery has been understood as antithetical to, capitalism in the sense that, you know, capitalism is supposed to involve free wage labor and individuals owning their own labor and having the right to sell it on the marketplace. Um, but in, in many ways, you know, selling and trading the actual laborers themselves, you can almost see as a more pure form of capitalism. It's the market for labor taken to a real extreme. Um, or to its most extreme. And so I, I have a real, I really struggle with the notion that, that slavery and capitalism are, are somehow antithetical. I actually think it, it, slavery um, was a pretty pure expression of sort of capitalist ideology in the sense that, um, I mean, there's the market for labor that I've just been mentioning, but also the reason these enslaved workers were so desired was typically to mass produce some kind of commodity for long distance trade and, and mass markets. So that it, it all it all fits in, it, as part of a sort of proto-capitalist um, or early capitalist model, I think. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And so I think I maybe have one more question. I want to bring it back to the enslaved themselves to kind of conclude. But I want to make sure it's such a rich book that uh, I don't want to uh, 
sort of ignore something that you want to maybe bring up about the book that might be important. Is there anything that we're we're kind of leaving out here that you want to mention? Well, it may be it may be where you're going. I think it'd be useful to talk about some of the the sort of implications of this for understanding the African diaspora and um, what. Yeah, that's great, and, and I think that was essentially just how I wanted to conclude was was with this aspect of what this does. And you can kind of go in whatever direction you want to, but you you certainly sketch out some aspects of how this affects um, kind of maybe creolization and sort of the development of culture, um, what it does to the enslaved themselves, um, that those elements of the African diaspora. So so how do you see this kind of contributing to that debate around the the creation of culture? Sure. Um, the uh, you know, because when we were, we were talking about the captive experience before, I was mostly focusing on the level of individuals and, and their shipboard experiences. Um, but there's another way to think about what this trade means for the captives in the terms of, of looking at how it affects the broader migration patterns of large numbers of people. And one of the things that I think this, this commerce in people – um, between colonies really did was complicate or, or, or entangle some of the lines of migration from Africa to the Americas. Um, because if you just look at transatlantic trading patterns alone, um, you know, there are some strong connections between particular African regions and particular American colonies. Um, for instance, French slave traders were often frequented the Bite of Benin. Um, so they're bringing people from a particular region and supplying them to their own colonies in the Americas. And that, that pattern matters, but um, when you start wrestling with the fact that per, you know, between a quarter and half of the enslaved people in the 18th century who are arriving in, in French colonies like Martinique and Guadeloupe were actually coming from British colonies rather than being supplied by French slave traders. Well, British slave traders going to Africa didn't tend to go to the Bight of Benin. They tended to frequent other regions of the African coast, which meant people of different linguistic backgrounds, of different um, you know, religious and cultural traditions that they're carrying and delivering ultimately through this illegal intercolonial trade to French colonies, they're diversifying the slave quarters in those colonies. So it's, um, and, and there are a lot of examples of that where in, in different phases of a colony's growth, whether in British America or outside of it, that, um, different means of supply, reach a, a colony. So, so captives arriving by different means arrive in different phases of a colony's growth and change the patterns of what region in Africa people are coming from. Um, all of which I think leads to more diversification of, of enslaved populations in many different colonies, um, leading to, I think a lot of creolization that, um, in addition to adapting to a new world, um, many enslaved people had to adapt to a diverse set of other African peoples that they're settling among um, in American slavery, uh, leading to, you know, adaptations in terms of language, syncretism, of religious and, and cultural ideas. Um, it's not something that, because of the range of geography that the book deals with, that I can go into great detail about for any one place in the book. 
Um, but I think it's a pattern across many places that um, we need to reckon with a little bit. It's one of the places that I hope people pick up on the book and use it in other research to start thinking through what this means for particular colonial populations. I think that's true for a lot of the book. I mean, it's so much of it is, is new to a lot of scholars. And I think it will really reshape the way people even imagine how this trade works uh, generally. So um, I, I just got, want to conclude uh, maybe by asking you what you're working on right now. And uh, sort of now that you have this book completed, what's the next step forward? Um, well, I'll, I'll, there's a couple things that I'm working on that point in sort of different directions. One is very much an outgrowth of this project. Um, I guess we didn't talk in great detail about sort of the the hard data that underlies the the study that I've done. But one of the things that I did was go through all of the port records for the various British colonies to document shipments of enslaved people to try to quantify what were the major roots of this trade. And um, and so anyway, through that, I've amassed the database of. Uh, about it's over 7,600 voyages now that carried enslaved people from one colony to another. Um, and so I'm working on having that added to the transatlantic slave trade database. Um, and, uh, David Eltis just secured a, an NEH grant that's going to help us fund that project. Um, so oh, hopefully great. in another year or two, um, there will be a new interface as part of the, the, you know, very, popular, widely used transatlantic slave trade database. It's at slavevoyages.org. Um, there will be a new intra-American interface on that website to, to allow other scholars to use that research um, to study the ways in which people move between American colonies. So that's one big project that I'm working on at the moment. And uh, But then another takes me in a really different direction. I'm, I'm working on a biography project um, that is on a man who was born a slave in Virginia. Um, and his name's David George and he, um, just has an amazing life, um, through a series of attempts to escape slavery. He moves to a number of different places throughout the Atlantic world, often re-enslaved, um, but in ever-changing circumstances. And then ultimately during the American Revolution, he, he runs to the British and gains emancipation that way, um, settles for a while in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then ends up a settler in Sierra Leone. So he has this amazing transatlantic um, life that uh, touches on a lot of different aspects of the colonial experience and, and um, also is sort of a powerful inversion of some of the narratives we like to focus on with the American revolution and that for him to find freedom during the American revolution, he has to run away from the United States to the British empire. Um, so I think his story is a really interesting one for thinking about what slavery meant, um, and what freedom was about in, in the era of the American revolution. Well, that's terrific. And it's, it's great to know that scholars will have access to the, a lot of the details of this intercolonial slave trade, because I think it really will help reshape the way that we, we talk about and understand it. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Dan. This is great.